I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And a quick reminder that you can follow us at Pod. And by the way, if you've got any questions, thoughts, ideas you want to share, tweet right at us. Now let's get on with the show. The trend grows more alarming by the day. The coronavirus pandemic is having a hugely disproportionate impact on minority communities. This week, Maryland reported that African-Americans and other minorities accounted for more than half the 103 deaths from the virus in that state. That fits in with a national picture in which counties that are majority black have three times the rate of infections and almost six times the rates of death as counties where white residents are in the majority, according to a Washington Post analysis. We'll talk about these figures to two public health experts, Yahoo News medical contributor Dr. Kavita Patel and former Baltimore Health Commissioner Dr. Lena Wen, and ask them what can be done about it. And we'll also get their outlook for when social distancing restrictions can start to be lifted on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I think these figures on the impact on minorities is going to be a huge story that's going to be with us for some time. It's a huge story just in terms of the real-life impact it's having on communities across the country, cities across the country. It's going to be a big political story because underlying it are the inequalities, economic and otherwise, in the country. And that's going to play into the political debate in the country. Look, the virus does not discriminate, but the virus does expose the huge structural inequities and disparities in our healthcare system. And the numbers really are shocking. When we first started to see them, some people cautioned that we need more data to be able to really be sure that this kind of pattern exists. But in reality, who really needs more data? Who doesn't know that healthcare outcomes in marginalized communities are worse because people have less access to good health care and because you know people who are live in poverty are just uh, not going to fare as well in our in our health care system the number that really jumped out at me by the way was Chicago 72 percent of virus related fatalities in Chicago were of African Americans when they represent only a third of the population. And we are seeing these kinds of numbers around the country. You know, there is this concept that I've read about called weathering, which is this idea that there's been increasing research on that people who live in these kinds of poorer communities, marginalized communities, that the stress placed on their lives contribute to worse healthcare outcomes. So stress from 
poverty, stress from crime, all of the kinds of stresses that people experience living in these kinds of communities. And uh, it is a huge problem that obviously we're going to have to deal with in the long term. But the question right now is, how do we deal with this in the short term? People are dying because of these inequities. And just getting back to the political dimension to this, ironically, these figures are coming in on the the same week that the one candidate for president who made front and center inequality and also expanding health care, Medicare for all, uh, Bernie Sanders, has dropped out of the race. So one wonders, as these disparities get more and more attention, is that going to be put more pressure on Biden to move closer to Sanders' positions on some of these issues? Does it affect his vice presidential selection process? Does it make it more likely he'll want to put an African-American on the ticket just to underscore his commitment to doing something about no, well, these those disparities? Are all, those are all good questions. But I would say what it is, is it is a huge opportunity for Biden, who has had trouble breaking through on this issue, understandably, because He's just a candidate right now. He doesn't actually run anything other than a campaign. He doesn't have kind of the levers of power to make a difference, but he does have a voice and he does have a historic relationship with the African-American community where he has credibility and a community, by the way, that has put him in the position of being the Democratic nominee for the presidency. So I think it is both an opportunity, but also an obligation at this point. And uh, let's see if we start hearing from uh, from Biden in a really significant way on these issues. Well, look, these are uh, big questions, but today's is not going to be a political podcast. We've got two really good public health experts to talk about these figures and to talk about where we're going. So let's stay focused on that and bring them into the conversation. We now have with us on the uh, podcast, Dr. Kavita Patel, a Yahoo News medical contributor and a public health specialist and former Obama administration official, and also Dr. Lena Wynn, the former health commissioner of Baltimore and a emergency physician and professor of health at George Washington University. Doctors, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. I want to start out by talking about the mounting evidence we're seeing of the disproportionate impact the virus is having on minority communities. Uh, Maryland today has just reported for the first time a uh, ethnic breakdown and racial breakdown of virus cases in the state. This is a state where 30% of the population is black, yet more than 50% of the fatalities and the cases are African Americans. This is In keeping with a lot of data we're seeing, I want to ask both of you, what accounts for this disproportionate impact on minorities? Dr. Patel. Sure, I'll go first, and thanks for having me. I think that uh, you're seeing, actually, in medicine, we would call kind of symptoms more reflective of a broader, larger diagnosis. There There have been, for decades now, kind of documented systemic 
racial disparities in all aspects of healthcare from access, you know, access healthcare, literally, how do people of color actually get insurance or not able to get insurance all the way through disparities in once they even get to a doctor, whether they receive the same type of treatments as their non-ethnic minority counterparts. So to be even more blunt about it, when you see numbers out of Maryland, Chicago, New Orleans, every urban center that is identifying kind of a, a you know a difference and discrepancy in how minorities are being treated for COVID or not treated or obtaining lab tests, that also has to do, I think, with what we've known that it is harder to receive care. And even when you do, it's different. And that's, I think, I, I'm trying not to be so, I don't want to reduce it all to one thing, but that's that's my take on it. And you also have to remember that communities of color, and certainly Lena knows a lot about this because she did it every day, communities of color have had challenges accessing these kind of hospitals and hospital-based care in large part because where you have a high concentration of communities of color, there are just less hospital beds per capita. So we do know research across urban centers that there are fewer hospital beds in communities of color compared to other neighborhoods and areas. Dr. Wen, as the top public health official in Baltimore, a city with a large African-American population, I assume this does not come as a big surprise to you. And so tell us what kinds of entrenched disparities you were seeing in healthcare delivery and outcomes for African-Americans. And I guess this is also a problem for Hispanics as well. But tell us about the disparities that you were seeing in Baltimore when you were working there. Sure. And I live in Baltimore still. And so I'm looking out my window and just reflecting on the disparities among residents in, in my city. I mean, you have neighborhoods in Baltimore that are just a couple of miles apart, where a child born today can expect to live 65 years or 85 years, a 20-year difference in life expectancy based solely on the zip code into which she or he is born. And then, you know, I used to begin my presentations when I was the health commissioner with a map of our city. And I actually stopped showing these maps of disparities because it almost didn't matter what you had in the legend. It was the same map over and over again, because the same areas that had high um, infant mortality also had high cardiovascular disease, also had high rates of death from gun violence, also had high prevalence of HIV and drug overdose, and of course, also had high rates of incarceration and low socioeconomic status. I mean, it's the same map over and over again. And when I think about COVID-19 and the data that we're now gathering, it's tragic, but not at all surprising. Because as Kavita just mentioned, this is just one more example of amplified disparities. Um, disparities that are rooted in systemic racism and the historic inequities that got us to where we are that are then amplified also by lack of access to healthcare, but it's not just healthcare. It's also the social determinants of health, access to healthy food, the air that we breathe, the education, op education opportunities that we're exposed to, and also the circumstances in people's lives. I mean, physical distancing, social distancing is a privilege that many of us have, but many people don't have as a result of their work or uh, living situations. 
Um, and so I think there's a lot more that we need to do when it comes to reconciling where we are now with the history of disparities in our city. Let me just pick up on that uh, last point you made about social distancing, because a lot of us um, do have the luxury of working from home, of doing podcasts and participating in Zoom meetings and doing all the things we would do in the office. But given the um, inequality in, uh, in our country, the larger predominance of less fortunate people who don't have that luxury, who do have blue collar jobs or do have jobs where they simply cannot work at home, that that is in and of itself is disproportionately impacting minority communities. And this is a, in a sense, the steps we're taking to try to flatten the curve may be exacerbating those disparities. Dr. Patel, your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's not just an important point to make, but it, it highlights what I think uh, Lena has been kind of commenting, we're calling it social determinants of health, but it's this interplay of, you know, the very people who are identified in kind of lower wage jobs as, you know, essential workers, to your point, are not only are they not able to stay at home, but it's it's actually worse than that. They are being told, in fact, I have cases in D.C. of former patients of mine who are told that they are essential, but they have been taken, their their health care actually has been taken away because they are being told they're essential and they are not given enough money or wages in order to receive health care. And so you actually have undocumented people who are picking our fruit and you have people of color who are checking our groceries and actually have, you know, zero rights. And part of what I've found, um, Dan and Mike, is that we're trying desperately, I'm not a lawyer, Lena's not a lawyer, and we're having to learn in the healthcare industry how to be advocates on multiple fronts for populations in a way that certainly I've never encountered. And it's bringing up, I mean, you know, my parents kind of went through like the civil rights movement and I'm a first generation, Lena is as well. And I really see so much of what I have read about unfolding today and it troubles me, but then I also see some, did not make everything seem so negative. I do see some amazing silver linings of people just pulling together and willing to advocate for these populations. My fear is that we have preventable deaths on our, we have blood on our hands and we have, I'm worried that we're not learning from that. That's probably the most graphic I can be about it. I guess my question on this though would be if the social distancing restrictions are having this kind of impact on people of color and people less fortunate. What's the remedy for that? What steps can we take that could uh, mitigate that disproportionate impact if there are any? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the key here is to take away the right lesson. I don't think the right lesson is to say, well, if social distancing is creating or amplifying disparities, that we should do away with social distancing. I don't think that that's the right lesson because, frankly, this is the only tool that we have at our disposal right now. When we do not have a vaccine, when we don't have a working treatment, when our healthcare system is in crisis, what we can each do is practice social distancing to the best of our abilities. And actually, one could see it flipped as well. 
as in those of us who have the privilege of practicing social distancing should be doing that so that we allow the others who cannot practice social distancing to have the best chance at reducing trans transmission, as in if individuals have to take public transportation because that's their only way of getting to work, then those who have the privilege of not taking public tran transportation should be avoiding it so that those who have to take it can actually physically distance in that way. The less community transmission that we all have, the better it is for everyone in our community. So that's one way to see it. And then the other thing too, is to see it as our obligation, all of us, to create better policies that support those who do face the greatest burden of disparities. So for example, when it comes to accessing healthcare, those of us who do have good health insurance policies should still be advocating for everyone to have universal health care, to not be priced out of the ability to get testing and treatment. We should all be advocating for paid sick leave. We should all be um, advocating for programs like housing and supports for individuals who, who otherwise cannot afford food. I mean, I think well, those are things that we can all do. Dr. Wen, let me, let me and at both of you, Kavita as well, let me ask you, because you're talking about prescriptions for deeply entrenched social and economic problems that we have. And we're in the middle of a crisis right now, and people's lives are on the line. Are there things that should be done now that can be done now by the government, by hospitals, by uh, healthcare institutions to deal with these inequities uh, right at this moment? Yeah, I'll start. I think absolutely. So bottom line, Lena's correct. We need to extend kind of everybody needs to follow. I'll call it, you know, universal masking, non-medical masks. There's a lot of debate in the, as you know, in Maryland, some of the counties are enforcing it. Some aren't. We need number one, people all need to wear masks. If it protects me, it protects you. If we're all doing it together. Number two, hospitals have never really traditionally been very good at thinking beyond their borders and their walls. And we know just, for example, in the district in Maryland, we know to Lena's point, there are neighborhoods where there is, there is zero ability to access a test. So we need hospitals who are incredibly focused on what's happening inside their walls to actually take Literally today, a pop-up in the testing area, or at least a pop-up so that there's a presence in these neighborhoods of color. And then third, something that I'm finding with kind of the population I deal with, which is um, largely non-English speaking, there are not a lot people have been talking about telemedicine, and we are finding that we're having to use just regular old-fashioned telephones, no video, no fancy apps, no Skype, no FaceTime because there's still a lot of distrust amongst communities of color, and there's also a lack of kind of that technology access. And then at the, I guess as a final step, obviously we've talked at length on your podcast with others have talked about the lack of a federal response. So we need local officials to step up the enforcement for protection for these, I'll call them essential workers, but I'll also call them vulnerable populations. And that, I think, is another layer that could be done today. For example, the mayor of Baltimore, the mayor of D.C., and they've done this to some degree, actually making it clear that public buses, public transportation is prioritized for these workers and actually making it free, which I know is a huge hit to the city's economy. But we need to make it as easy as possible at every step of the way for people to earn a living and to do it in a way that keeps them healthy. 
Do either of you see any evidence at this point that we are flattening the curve? Yes, there are hopeful signs from parts of this country and the world. I mean, looking at other countries, I think, is an important important indicator for us because we can learn lessons about what's worked and what's not. We look at countries like New Zealand that have done an exceptional job of containing COVID-19 and countries like South Korea that with aggressive testing and contact tracing have also been able to do this too. So important lessons from other countries as well as from within our own country. Washington State, California, two places that um, had early signs of community transmission because they were very aggressive about social distancing, um, physical distancing guidelines. Um, We do see evidence that they did not have this skyrocketing, right? I mean, I think a lot of public health is, what did you prevent? They were able to prevent this rapid escalation of cases that we've seen in other places. And I think is a hopeful sign that these measures, as draconian and restrictive as they might seem, actually have been effective. And as um, I think all public health experts and Dr. Fauci um, even mentioned this this morning, now is not the time to look at these indicators and say, well, they've been successful, so we should let up, but rather to take the opposite lesson, to say, we know what works, so we have to double down on these efforts and prevent more deaths from happening. So as Dr. Uh, as Dr. Patel Kavita was saying, we don't have more blood on our hands because now that we know what works, we have to do it. Kavita, what are the, what are the data points that you are most focused on that might suggest that we're flattening the curve here because we know that while the the number of fatalities, for example, in New York City, where I am right now, continues to go up, you know, record numbers, Governor Cuomo has been pointing to hospitalizations, which seems to have been leveling off. Is that an important indicator of where things are right now? Yeah, I've, I've been tracking for about 16 metropolitan areas, just drawing from their county or city's websites. And also trying to get, you know, it's it's a several things. It's the doubling rate. So how many days does it take for cases to double? And when, you know, in New York City, at one point, we were seeing that every two to three days, the number of cases, not hospitalized, but just cases of coronavirus were doubling every two to three days. And that has now slowed down to approximately five to seven days in some parts of, of Manhattan. So looking for doubling rates. Certainly looking at hospitalization rates as well as ICU rates, as well as discharges. I mean, that's something that's getting reported and people aren't actually processing it. But it is a great story when someone gets discharged from the hospital. That's a that's a good thing. And so that's that's another indicator. And I do also feel like something that needs to be emphasized and and certainly Dr. Wen will kind of I, I think agree is is the number of tests. I mean, we are still seeing, I'm from Texas, we are still seeing disturbingly low total numbers of tests. And I think that, that to me, that just tells me that we've underestimated the cases in that particular region. And that's just one example of several in the Midwest where we still have a lack of access to testing. And it's hard to believe that in April of 2020, we're still saying that, but we are. As a result of that, um, the lack of testing, and a number of people have observed that it makes it hard to 
come to any firm conclusions about what the fatality rate of those who are infected are, if we don't know how many people have actually been infected. What's your best information at this point about where we are and what the fatality rate for getting the virus is for those who get the virus? Well, I really agree with everything that Kavita and all of you are saying about testing, that the lack of testing has hindered us in many ways, including with not actually knowing what where the next epicenter of the outbreak is going to be. I mean, there are places that may have zero cases that are reported, but that doesn't mean that they actually have zero cases. We also know that the lack of testing has contributed to another issue too with with regard to the fatality because if we're looking at i think what you're referring to is the numerator and the denominator right so if the denominator actually is much larger because there are many more people with the disease that we just haven't picked up on then perhaps the fatality rate is lower than we might be currently getting there's a numerator problem too though in that there are people dying who may not have a a known diagnosis of COVID-19, but actually has died because of it. The other issue too within the US is that the death rates lag behind the infection rate because it takes time for somebody to become infected and then to become severely ill and then to succumb to that illness. And so that fatality rate in the US, I think still remains unknown. We do know that out of China, out of Italy, that the fatality rate has varied. Um, some, In some places, some people think that it's 3%. There may be some cases where it's as high as 8%. But there are a lot of unknowns because of our testing issues and also because the demographics in our country may differ from those in, in others, too. Dr. Wen um, and and Kavita as well, Anthony Fauci was on CNN this morning uh, talking about how we are days away from immunity testing, which uh, I know there's a lot of interest in, and it also relates to this question of when life can return to some semblance of normalcy. But there are a lot of questions about both immunity testing, the efficacy of that testing. Also, we're seeing in some of the medical literature that there is the potential for reinfection. And, you know, I think we've seen some cases out of South Korea, reports out of South Korea to that effect. Talk to us about immunity testing and about this idea of uh, the potential of reinfection. Kavita, why don't you go first? There was a lot of hope for immunity testing with kind of a rapid immunity test, but we, we do not know enough about the performance of these tests. So I'll caveat all of this by telling you that There is hope for it, but we do not yet have enough. I think what we're going to require in the country is kind of a panel of immunity tests. It's not going to be just this one test. It's going to have to be kind of a set of tests that tells us, have you had this infection in the past? Do you currently have it? And we still also do not know, to your point about reinfection, we believe that getting coronavirus gives you some immunity that we think probably lasts for several months. But as you kind of heard, we can't tell if the reinfection is really false negatives or some level of lab detection error or true reinfection. And I think that where, I I guess I'll go ahead and put a stake in the ground here. I think that what I'm looking forward to in the fall, we'll have more antibody-based treatment ramping up to do clinical management of this disease. We have other maybe additional drug tools in our kind of, you know, utilitarian armament. 
And then we can use that as a bridge to a vaccine, which can hopefully, you know, Dr. Fauci has said, you know, 12 to 18 months at the fastest. And I'm really hopeful that at some point then we get what we call in public health herd immunity. And mm -hmm. until then, you know, I know that there have been others that have said, well, we need to be in kind of a total lockdown until then. But I think that, you know, what you describe as kind of this immunity-based testing, which is only a piece of it, plus some actual treatments that we have, which I think will largely be antibody-based, and then kind of early vaccines, which is, you know, hopeful, but not necessarily promised to be delivered on in, in a certain amount of time. And I think that's where we start to have the country feel a little bit closer to normal. Even Wuhan, which has reopened, quote unquote, doesn't look normal. So I think there's some level of that that we have to expect. One quick follow-up question, and Dr. Wen, maybe you want to take this on. We're reading that in the UK, they have seriously been discussing this idea of immunity passports. And Dr. Fauci, apparently this morning, talked about immunity certificates being under discussion in this administration. The idea is that if you're tested and you're deemed to be immune, then you get a certificate that says, okay, you're good, you can go back into the the workplace, it seems a little Orwellian. It seems like you're, you know, sort of creating two classes of people. As public health policy specialists, what's your reaction to the idea of immunity certificates? I mean, I actually think it's a great idea mm -hmm. if we have the science to back it up. I mean, there are a lot of people, we know that there are a lot of people who have COVID-19 and just don't know it. Um, there are some who have symptoms, but never got tested. There are some who never had symptoms in the first place. I think a lot of people would want to know if they have immunity to COVID-19. I mean, that's assuming though, that the science is what we assume it to be. As in, we assume, right, the assumption has to be that once you get it, you're not going to get it again. And there was the question earlier about reinfection. I don't know that I trust these reports coming out because it's also possible that somebody wasn't quote unquote reinfected, but rather that they never recovered from the illness in the first place mm -hmm. or that there was something wrong with the test that was measured. And so I don't know if reinfection is possible, but we have to assume that the, or that the only way for this immunity passport to work is if somebody really develops long-term immunity and cannot become reinfected because otherwise you're giving somebody false assurance and maybe they'll even get sicker the second time around, right? So we have to, that has to be the assumption. Another assumption is that the test is valid, that you're not going to get a false positive or negative because again, that that gives, um, or that, that provides false re reassurance and may be very dangerous. But assuming that you do get lifelong immunity and that the test is fully accurate, that would be wonderful. You can imagine healthcare workers would want to know if they are immune. Individuals would want to know if they're immune. They can certainly potentially live their lives very differently, be deployed in a frontline settings very differently. So I guess I'm not as concerned about the kind of the negative societal consequences as I am very optimistic about what this could mean if such tests were actually available. Now, I don't think we're anywhere close to that because we still need so much more data available on whether there's immunity in the first place. And we need widespread testing, not only for these the serologies, the antibody testing that we're talking about, we don't even have testing to find out if somebody has an acute infection. So there's a lot that we need to do to get there, but if we are, it would be extremely promising. Last question for both of you, given where we are right now, and let's assume that the few hopeful trends we're seeing continue, 
when do you foresee that we might be able to lift some of the restrictions and get back to business as usual? I'd like to hear from both of you on that. I'll start. I think I certainly think there will be some lags in certain parts of the country, but I would say, for example, in the East Coast, kind of our area, I would say that by the end of May, we should have more guidance on how larger groups, let's call it schools, churches, kind of have a little bit more behavior that looks closer to normal. I think that we have now gone to where our country is going to be more comfortable, even in those settings with masks. And I often wonder if shaking hands or some of the things we do conventionally as part of our everyday work is going to change. And so I do think, though, that, for example, in this kind of district metropolitan area, New York, et cetera, we will start to see guidance that are going to come from local officials, candidly, about kind of moving back to closer to normal by the end of May, potentially the beginning of June. And now having said that, if we get a hot spot that's unexpected or kind of a reversal in those trends, like that Governor Cuomo keeps caveating, you know, like it could end up being different mm-hmm. the next several days, then that changes. But that's what I'm looking forward to. And I'll tell you that, you know, that's where, to be honest, that's for me a light at the end of the tunnel because it's not that far away. Dr. Wen? I think we'll see restrictions being rolled back in phases. We're not going to see it all just one day. Everything's going to go back to the pre-COVID-19 days, but rather we'll see area by area, as Kavita was saying, and also different types of restrictions being lifted. Certain businesses going back, um, maybe schools. And I think we have to be prepared for what happens if there is another surge. What happens if there is another wave of infections? We have to be ready for that consequence and be ready to implement the these restrictions again. But I think as long as we recognize, continue to recognize that this is a quickly evolving situation, which is what we've said from the beginning, and also not see trials as setbacks because we frankly don't know what will happen. We are learning from the experience in China and from other countries that are lifting these restrictions, but there's a lot that we don't know about what will happen in this country. And so continuing to tolerate that uncertainty is important for all of us. On that sobering note, I want to thank both of you. It's been a really helpful discussion. We always appreciate uh, your insights, Dr. Patel and Dr. Wen. It's great to have you on for the first time. We hope to have both of you back. Thank you. Thanks very much. Who was more dominant at their game, Tiger or MJ? You take Tiger out of the equation and golf is the most unbelievably boring sport in existence. And I love golf. What's the best baseball movie of all time? The problem with Major League It's a baseball movie about baseball. In the time of quarantine, Yahoo Sports is putting every single argument you've ever heard or made in a sports bar to the test. Check out Boxed In by Yahoo Sports on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on yahoosports.com, YouTube, or your podcast app of choice. Thanks to Yahoo News medical contributor Kavita Patel and former health commissioner of Baltimore, Lena Wen, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on SiriusXM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you soon.